Welcome to A Rock and a Hard Place, the podcast that explores why minerals matter, their importance to society, and the role they will play in the low-carbon future. I'm your host, Thomas Hale, a graduate student exploring the mineral security nexus at the University of Delaware in the Minerals, Materials, and Society program. Join me as I speak with leading experts in the field of critical minerals to discuss some of the most pressing challenges facing society and learn more about their experience working in this emerging space. Enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome back to part two of my conversation with Dr. Corby Anderson, a professor in the Mining Engineering Department and the director of both the Kroll Institute for Extractive Metallurgy and the Center for Resource Recovery and Recycling at the Colorado School of Mines. So let's continue our conversation because you mentioned NIMBY and I'm wondering, do you believe that NIMBY is ultimately going to block many of these large legislative and executive developments or slow them down to where it's going to be a national security issue? If so, what should we be doing in regards to public education about mining? And is it the responsibility of the mining company, the government or teachers who should be talking about these issues? Because right now, personally, I feel like there's a lot of investment in the mining sector, but there's very little connection to K through 12 college education about materials and sciences. This is true. There is a gap. People do not, when it comes to metals and materials and minerals, they don't know where they come from. And it's difficult for them to conceptually understand why things need to happen the way they do when you create lithium or nickel or cobalt. And yeah, there is a culmination of things. People are more they're not living in the country as much. And so they don't look at a chicken and then go to the Safeway and realize, oh, that chicken was alive yesterday and now it's all cut up. And I can jump. So there's this connection, or maybe that's part of it, particularly with mining. It's hard to look at a rock and say, oh, that became the steel for my automobile because the steps in between are a bit mysterious. And some of it is the educational process, either what people are learning or being told or the lack of what they're learning or being told. And then the mining companies do play a role. A number of them are, I would say, they do a lot of outreach or they try and educate. But yeah, because it's a cyclical business, you'll see a, a rush when the prices are up and then you'll see a retrenching when it's not. And of course, the first ones thrown under the bus are your young professionals or your research department. And so it's kind of a jumbled existence, at least in this country, it has been. And yeah, you don't have to look very far to see the NIMBY when it comes to anything. I mean, you go to somebody's locale and you say, hey, I'm going to build clean energy. Oh, that's great. We want it. What is it? Well, it's going to be a nuclear reactor. Really? Try and get that one going. Or you say, look, I'm an electric vehicle battery manufacturer. I'm going to set up a new city and create jobs. Oh, that's great. What kind of batteries are you going to make? Oh, we're going to make lead batteries. Well, lead is a four-letter word. It's like, oh my God, don't put that here. I love buying my battery from O'Reilly's Auto and returning it, but beyond that, I don't to do it. So ad infinitum, right? And I understand fully the implications of what transpired in mining 150 years ago. I mean, I, you know, I spent part of my time in Colorado and Western Montana, and I was born and raised in Butte, Montana, which is the nation's number one Superfund site because of unfettered mining and smelting activities. It's now been largely remediated and they have a consent decree. So this path forward. So I understand the dirty pictures. I understand the legacy. Modern mining generally is not like that. Modern manufacturing doesn't have to be like that. And it's best done in our country or places like Canada, where it's more highly regulated. 
and more effective, more efficient than if we ship it off to nowhere is built and just take the materials and kind of turn a blind eye to what happens, right? It's just like recycling. When you ship things offshore, you take electronics, there's children out in the streets of Mexico City uh, burning circuit boards. It's ugly. Or India, places like that, it's cheaper. You get the material, but what's the impact on the people and the environment? So I don't know. There's going to have to be a a comeuppance in this country because you can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And if we really want to have domestic minerals and materials and metals, we're going to have to realize that when you want to make an omelet, you have to break a few eggs. Now, how you break those eggs and what you do with the shells, that's very important these days, right? For sure. And mentioning the NIMBY and wanting to just turn an eye sometimes and do it elsewhere. I think in the last time that we've spoken, the Ukraine conflict has broke out and it's really tested the boundaries of some of these supply chain things. I think there's been a lot of awareness around European energy dependency and Ukrainian supply chains and the role that Ukraine played in processing some materials from Russia. So do you think there's some lessons learned here or what should U.S. policymakers and national security analysts be taking away from that conflict? When we think about NIMBY and doing something offshore, we think about our energy grid or supply chains here. Well, I think that event has really upset the apple cart in oh so many ways. I remember years ago, I subscribed to a magazine called Bloomberg. It was a weekly magazine. And one of the front covers was maybe 10 years ago. It had a picture of Putin and it was talking about the natural gas fields in Siberia that the Russians had and how he would politically use this to his advantage. And I thought, well, that's very interesting. And here we are. And of course, unfortunately, he went into Ukraine and I've been there and I can tell you what, the Ukrainians are not going to give up. They are fierce people who are proud of their country. And at the end of the day, you'll see Ukrainian grandmothers with umbrellas, and they'll be beating on Russian tanks the last person. Putin, I think, made a serious error, and I think he erred with NATO, too, because they realized. But when it comes to the energy nexus, I really think that has brought a focal point to the whole energy situation, because when you say to yourself, well, I don't want to increase CO2 emissions. Okay, what are my options in Europe? They're cutting off the gas. We've got rid of nuclear. The renewables are either not there or they're very expensive. And so people are taking a sharper look at things, at least in the interim, to make it through the winter. Yeah, I think it, it's a terrible thing, and I hope it gets peacefully resolved and we can go back to some kind of new world order. But I think between I mean, everything, the supply chain issue from COVID to now this conflict of Russia and Ukraine, and then this whole idea of domestic production, domestic independence is getting a new life where 10 years ago, everything was globalization, outsource it. We don't do that kind of stuff. Our economy is at a different level. I think people are becoming aware of, oh my goodness. It is kind of nice to have energy independence. It's nice to have material independence. And how do we get there? You bring up a good point about diversifying the supply chains. And we talk about where we get our materials from. And I also think there is kind of a cautionary tale of around like, is it truly, and maybe this is from your personal perspective, is a fully independent or domestically integrated supply chain possible? And is it even desirable? Like, do you want to have diversification? Because I see a lot of people that say, we just want to bring everything back home. But is that even possible? 
in an immediate 50 years, because I think of semiconductors, for instance, they've estimated a thousand different steps and crossing borders 70 different times. So, you know, we talk about let's reduce from other countries, but is it even possible or desirable? Well, I was born in the United States and I live here and we have a choice. The question you asked, we have a choice. If you ask that to somebody in Japan, you'd probably get a different answer because when it comes to energy and materials, they are almost entirely dependent nowadays. And I think that they would, from being in Japan and have many Japanese colleagues, I think they believe, my opinion, if they weren't so dependent and they have mastered the art of going out, finding the resources they need, financing what they have to, and bringing them and also recycling. Nobody recycles as well as the Japanese. But I think at the end of the day, if you sat down with something there, they say, you know, it'd be nice to have a little domestic production of this stuff because then we aren't totally out on the limb. In the United States, we have a bounty of mineral wealth, of energy wealth. We have more universities and colleges than anybody in the world. So we have many more opportunities to train people in the skills we need. We have a choice, which is nice. And personally, yeah, I think more domestic reliance or domestic capability in the long run helps you. Even if you don't utilize it, the threat that you could helps keep your business 101, keeps your suppliers in line, right? So they know that you don't have to be dependent, then maybe you have a better relationship or a better deal. For sure. So final question if you're talking to someone who's never heard about mining and mineral materials, all these different issues that we're talking about, what is one of, not because I know there's a lot of different important issues, but what is the most important thing you think that person should know about the extractive sector regarding its importance to society and achieving many of the goals that we want in the future? Well, I think it's the old bumper sticker. If it's not growing, it needs to be mined. And what people to replace in their minds is that Mining and metal is a very high-tech, sophisticated business. It is global. And when you go anywhere from the exploration to the permitting, through design, build, operate, through to the finance of that or any other economic aspects, it's a very challenging, engaging business. And people tend to misunderstand what that means. And I think a lot of times when we explain that to prospective students, they go, oh, I didn't know you did that. Or, oh, I didn't know that was part of it. There you go. And so the old images, I think, need to be removed and we have to have a different understanding and comprehension of the value of mining and what its scope and intent is. Well, thank you so much, Corey, for joining us again on the podcast and joining many of these issues. And until next time, I'm your host, Thomas Hale, and thanks for joining us on another discussion on A Rock and a Hard Place. Thank you for joining us on another episode of A Rock and a Hard Place. Be sure to follow me on LinkedIn and check out our website, Mineral Choices, for more content. If you would like to be a guest on our podcast or contribute to our website, then please reach out. We love hearing from you, so do get in touch. And until next time, keep on rocking.